I really believe in this. I, I believe the right way to look at yourself as an analytics leader is to think of yourself as a business within the business, right? If Apple were to come and try to sell us a phone and you know they sold us a really nice looking box that didn't really work, there's no future business in that for them. Their company does not survive. They sell you a game-changing piece of technology that works just the way you want it to work. And so they have you know excellent customer loyalty, all those things. If you lead an analytics team, you need to be thinking in exactly the same way, which is it's not enough for me to be a used car salesman to give you a beat up old junker that looks good the first day you drive it off the lot. You all come back to buy from me again. You'll go find a vendor to do the work. It's not enough for me to make promises to you and then never show up with the goods. Like you need to be thinking about yourself as a small business person. Here comes a very special episode of the Data Storytellers podcast because I interviewed Pete Scherf. So Pete is the head of enterprise research and analytics at Swire Coca-Cola, and he's the perfect example of why we love working with this community so much. So Pete, when he's not running marathons, which he often does, he's known for his relentless commitment to driving this high-performance culture over in his team at Swire, and we're going to explore his journey how he achieved what he did. And if you have similar ambitions, there will be so many good nuggets in this one and a lot that you can actually implement and just take in your toolbox. So stay tuned, sit back and enjoy. Pete, welcome on the show. Thanks, Laz. I'm happy to be here. Well, we are going to uh, dive into a few subjects that are very close to my heart. Um, but, uh, before we, before we do that, before we do that, would you mind just giving a quick introduction into like what you do and, uh, what your role is currently? Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, I've been in data and analytics all my life, AI and machine learning, uh, the most recent 10 or 15 years. But, uh, you know, I started out in pharmaceuticals and life sciences. I worked in travel. I worked in cruising, uh, which was really fun. I recommend it. Uh, financial services, and I just moved into a role 12 months ago uh, at Swire Coca-Cola in Salt Lake City, Utah. So my first adventure in consumer packaged goods, specifically in beverages. Uh, and we're starting and growing a, a fast-moving analytics and AI team at Swire, really focused on adding value through data, uh, enriching our partners and enriching our customers. Mm, great. I'm always taking notes. I'm a pen and paper guy. Uh, so you said cruising. So 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 you yeah. said cruising. Uh, why do you why do you recommend it? Oh, I mean, cruising is just a really fun industry. I, I mean, I've never been in an industry that didn't have fascinating data, right? But uh, cruising is an interesting place. One because you get to try the product, right? I got to actually go on a cruise ship, do some research, and understand how the whole system works. But two, there's just a ton of really interesting data in that space. Most of the work I did happened to be marketing focused in the cruising space. But uh, you know, here at Swire, we're, we have a lot to do with predictive maintenance, right? There's plants that we run and machines. A cruise ship is just a giant manufacturing plant. In a certain sense, there's engines, there's all kinds of systems, there's things that can break down. The amount of data, uh, there's a, usually a casino of some sort on board, which has its own set of cool analytical use cases, the amount of data collected on a cruise ship, uh, it's one of the, got to be one of the most interesting industries for analytics. I'm not sure, I, I haven't been in it for many years, but I'd be surprised if they are not light years ahead of some others, given how much and how specific of a data they collect in cruising. So highly recommend it for nerdy reasons, but also it's a cruise ship and it's super fun. 
<laughs> I don't know how I missed this because um, on the masterclass that you attended, we actually had two people from cruise ships, uh, from Norwegian right. specifically. I don't know if you actually managed to have a conversation with them. You might have missed each other. We didn't. We didn't connect. That's too bad. I'll have to look them up afterwards. Yeah. I and to be fair, I was actually I was not directly employed by a cruise line. I was working for Ogilvy and Mather at the time, mm. uh, which is an advertising agency, and kind of worked through Ogilvy with Carnival Cruise Line on a lot of their digital marketing efforts. But it was a really fun time in my career. Uh, that said, I gotta say, probably, I mean, a close second to how much fun I'm having in beverages. The I've never worked with problems with scale as large as what we're doing in Coca-Cola. Mm. I mean, don't get me wrong, there's bigger data out there if you're working in the digital space for sure. But you talk about millions and millions of units, hundreds, uh, if not thousands of trucks, trips, people working together at a scale that's pretty unimaginable and, and on tasks that are traditionally more difficult to automate tasks, right? It's real things moving around in the real world. Uh, real beverages being placed on real shelves or delivered to real loading docks. Uh, and that's that's where like I think a lot of the really interesting problems are in AI and machine learning is I worked in in other industries, you know, life sciences and financial services that have their own amazing challenges. But since they're they're much more focused on numbers and numbers moving around in space, uh, AI comes much more natively to them, I guess I'd say. When you're moving, you know, cases of cans from a truck to a loading dock, it's really tough to plug AI into that uh, solution. So it's been a really fun challenge. Mm, yeah. And I know it's uh, being a super competitive industry at the same time, you know, quite established. So people, I mean, I don't want to assume anything, but, uh, you know, people can be setting their ways of, of how they do business. And you guys come in with something amazing like AI machine learning, and it's, you know, tough to, uh, uh, tough to give the patient the, the medicine that actually, that actually works. <laughs> So yeah, I'm, I'm, <laughs> no, no, I was just saying that, that we'll definitely dive into that. And, uh, and just before we jump there, I actually wanted to ask you that what actually got you into data analytics? So how did you end up working with analytics? Oh, sure. What was your journey into the, into the profession? I, uh, I mean, it was, a. I fell into it. I, you know, I think you're of the same sort of generation of analytics professionals. Uh, but you know, I, I became a an analyst and a data scientist before those words really were used in the professional sphere. I, I graduated uh, with a focus on math and English both. And I really thought I was going to be focusing on that English side of my equation. I thought I was going to be a college professor for the longest time. And I, you know, I found myself in a couple of jobs in publishing and other spaces where I just, I just needed to go faster to, you know, I have, I have this kind of drive, this curiosity, and I couldn't find a way to say it. And uh, so I taught myself to code, found a job through a friend at a consultancy working with pharmaceuticals and life science clients, and the rest is history. I, you know, I learned to learn to code, learn to manipulate data, learn to build reporting and analytics, learned about the concept of insights and storytelling, and then from there on into financial services and data modeling, predictive analytics, AI, and, and now here I am. All right, but th that's interesting. So. Uh... Uh, you mentioned academia. Uh, I remember the university uh, that I was in. They also tried to keep me keep me there, and it was appealing for multiple reasons. But I did end up doing what I'm doing now. Two questions with regards to this, especially I think how important it is to be a good educator as a data analyst pro uh, professional. Why did you think that you are going to end up in academia, and what made you yeah. pivot? 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I love to teach. I love to uh, work with people, especially with uh, with smaller groups of folks, uh, getting them to think about things in a new way, getting them to think about how they want to put their stamp on something, even though I maybe know how to do it my way. Uh, it's exciting to me to watch people riff on how things can be used and improvise as they go. So I thought for sure I'd be a professor or a teacher because I just love that. I love watching people realize the truth. And and I still, even when I was starting analytics, kind of got into a space where I was thinking I would go back to school and become a professor or a teacher because I love that. But I started to realize as we were advising, in this case, pharmaceutical companies on you know how they were going to build plans around selling, how they were going to do research and development activities, managing their warehouses and that kind of stuff that there was this other area in business that was really well appreciated, that was really fast moving, that allowed you to get into, I'm also a really curious guy, which I think is common among people in our industry, allowed me to get into all kinds of different problems and business questions, and understand how these secret things work. And that was reading people's data, you know, clients that invited us in and gave us their data and helping them answer tough questions about their business. That's like, it's really fun, you know, and in academia, don't get me wrong. There's some, I think, super rewarding challenges, opportunity to really change the world. But I really don't think academics get access at the speed and at the kind of like uh, level of challenge to tough day-to-day -to -day questions that change people's lives, you know, next week the way that folks in analytics do. So I have no regrets. I'll be honest. I, I love it. And my career shows that, you know, I've, like I said, I worked, the unique thing about me relative to most of my peers that I work with is that I've worked across a number of industries and it's given me an excuse to learn how mortgages work, how checking accounts work, and then how cruise ships work, and then how uh, the agribusiness works and how uh, pharmaceuticals work, always with data at the center with uh, now AI more recently at the center. And uh, it's like a skeleton key, you know, it, everybody needs help with this practice, although every industry is different, right? And uh, CPG obviously offers its new challenges, but I, I love that. It's my favorite part about being in data science in analytics is you can add value to somebody who knows way more about this thing than you do. And at the same time, you can learn what their problems are. And sometimes you can really unlock those problems and help them change the way they do business. Mm, absolutely. And, you know, I think if you're cut from a certain cloth, then it's hard to operate in a, in, in a space like academia. Again, kudos sure. to people who are there and they are generating amazing value in their own field. But, you know, uh, some people just need a, like the more competitive fields to really <laughs> come to life. And then you did come yeah. across like that to me as well during the conversation. So I, I found a, a kindred spirit in that regard. Um, and w what is your, so, so how do you approach your work now? How did your, actually the, this question, I haven't even thought about it before, but I'm, I'm curious to understand. How did you see your own approach to your professional uh, uh, conduct and also the craft itself, data analytics evolve over the years? Oh, oh man, how haven't I seen a change? I mean, uh, I, I think when you, when you are uh, a younger person in any field, you're really focused on how do I do this field well? And, uh, and I've talked to many friends who are, uh, I talked to one friend who's a surgeon, a few who have started their own business. Uh, and there's kind of the central thread of you reach a point in your career where you're focused on doing it really well. And then all of a sudden you realize that there, there isn't an objective good 
to pursue anymore, right? There's just like really tough choices about how to do things well. And I think that's, I mean, honestly, I think that's one thing that's really cool about what you guys do with the data storytellers is give folks a chance to kind of see and meet each other and who are in this kind of uh, mid to advanced stage of their career in the field and talk about what's the, what is the right way to approach this problem, right? We all have different solutions to it. So, so I, I would say that I would say early in my career, I was really focused on how do I, how do I solve this problem correctly? You know, that started out as how do I download the data in a way that doesn't create any logical errors. And it turned into how do I, you know, how do I write a correct, correctly coded XGBoost model, right? Uh, and somewhere along the way, I started to realize, um, well, for me, I started to realize I can be technically as correct as I want to be, but overwhelmingly the things I was building, probably nine out of 10 or maybe even more, were being built really well and then being put kind of on a shelf and, and just kind of left. Uh, you know, a business user would be like, this is amazing. What a cool thing. And then they would like, you know, leave the meeting, you know, that Pete's such a smart guy. And then they would just keep doing whatever they were doing. And, and, uh, I think not all of my colleagues, but many of my colleagues felt frustrated by that. I felt incredibly frustrated by the fact that, Hey, you know, I'm putting this work in and, and every once in a while it pays off when I have a smart business person who's willing to pick up the work that I've done and take it and really make change. But a lot of times that just wasn't happening. So. I, um, that's really what pushed me more towards a business focus, I guess, away from a technical focus and towards these questions of what is the right way to do things? How can you create insights? How can you process data? How can you train AI? Not just so that they are optimal, but so that they're actually useful, right? Um, I'll, I'll give credit to one of my employees who this morning said, we don't want to create the technically perfect model. We want to create the practically perfect model. Uh, and. That really, the last, especially the last 10 or 12 years, I suppose, of my career, my focus has been less about what's the right way to execute this. There's other people who are better at that than I am. Uh, my focus has been, how do I get the business ready to pick up the thing we're about to deliver and go use it to make a difference? Go make some money with it, go prevent some costs, go change our strategy, lower our risk, that sort of thing. I think what's really exciting for me is, uh, you know, oh yeah, I'll, I'll say it again. Mm -hmm. What uh, I, I'm not the perfect person to uh, build a model to actually execute the tech anymore. There's other people who are better at that than I am. What excites me and what I'm really good at is how do I prepare my business partners, prepare the business itself to get ready to pick up and use the thing that we're about to deliver? Um, how do we go forward and, and save costs or make more money, change the way our business works based on the analytics or the AI? or the application that we're about to develop. Fantastic. Actually, this is something I wanted to ask you uh, as well. Like, What are some of those big challenges that you see in the industry, but you already proposed one, right? That you build an amazing thing and people applaud it, uh, but at the oh, same yeah. time, they don't use it. So uh, I would love to get your take on what it takes to get over this challenge, but before we do that, maybe we can get a maybe maybe we can get a clearer snapshot of the nature sure. of the problem. So, why do you think this happens? Why do you think that um, amazing people with PhDs build things that could you know twenty x value in a business, but sure. people just don't use it? What do you see as the bottlenecks there? I think uh, 
Well, to rephrase what you're saying, I think if you are an analytics leader or an, an analytics team member who's looking to get something you've built used, right? I think that the overwhelming temptation is to focus on the the fuel you can add to to promote change, right? Um, I, I can't tell you how many meetings I've been in where a super talented data scientist or a really exceptional manager of analytics has come to the meeting and said, business partners, we have built this great thing. We have this uh, predictive model. We have this segmentation. We have this uh, amazing algorithm. And isn't it great? And here's how it works. And this is why you should believe in it. It's got all the top uh, you know, marks. It uses the best data. We've you know, pressure tested every piece of it. It's amazing, right? And uh, in my mind, and I'm borrowing here from a, a really good book called The Human Elements uh, that your listeners should check out. You know, it's all about adding fuel, right? What are the things that push my model forward? What's so, so good? Uh, but in my experience, if you want to make change, you really have to examine removing friction from your business partners, right? The reason why things don't get used has nothing to do with the fact that the things aren't good. It has a lot to do with the fact that the business process that exists outside of your model or your analysis isn't designed in such a way that it's easy to plug a model in. We don't have an application see the output of what you're designing and easily take action. Uh, you know, often it's the things that surround analytics that make the analytics successful. Uh, and so you really have to focus on not just what's great about the work you're doing, but you have to focus on what is going to get in the way, what is going to block my work from adding value to the business. So my, my answer is always removing friction rather than adding Mm, absolutely. I remember uh, Remember on the masterclass that you attended, one of the case studies, data stories were presented by Dave Coughlin uh, from CBS Health. That was the one on user-centric design, right? And it's such a hot topic and it's really also a mindset shift. Like how do, how do you need to approach your, your work? And so in, the, in that regard, uh, what is your... Uh, approach to putting together the right team and managing the right team. What are your key leadership philosophies that you think made you successful in this field? Because you definitely have the uh, have what it takes on your own, but you know you can be a one-man show. So how do you impart that attitude and mindset to the team? I think um, I'm a strong believer in balance is best in all things, right? I think you need to, an analytics team needs to have people who are strong communicators, strong listeners, uh, people who have uh, sort of a design mind, you know, who are thinking about how does this need to look and be shaped so that somebody can pick it up and use it. Again, those are the folks who are really going to help you remove that friction. But you can't forget to also have, you know, uh, and I love them to death, you know, sort of your hardcore technical experts, right? Whether you're talking about a really top quality data engineer, a really top quality data scientist, you need actually build the engine that can do something exceptional, but it's really the balance of these skills, the balance of, you know, I, we're in, uh, in the Coca-Cola system right now, we have, uh, we have sales teams we work with, we have logistics teams, we have uh, supply chain teams, right? People with different skills, you need to balance your team to make sure people are familiar with these different areas and they can teach each other. Uh, and it's only in that way, I think that you really get a team that can, that can uh, be nimble and to do anything. I, I think uh, from our previous conversations, you know, 
I'm a huge fan of agile development, of agile methods of doing business, because I think um, the the way that those methods create psychological safety for a team and the way that they really focus on a team of people working together, a team of usually equals working together and, and trying to influence one another, trying to convince each other what is the right way to do things, working iteratively and testing to see who's right. That's the way you get to a team that can not only add the fuel to what is this, how is this great, let's change everything, but also remove the friction. What does it feel like in order for our business users to pick it up and just go forward and, and use it seamlessly? Mm, I would love to zoom in on that a little bit. So um, Agile, um, a lot of our members already are using that methodology and they see amazing results from managing their projects that way. And some uh, are only vaguely familiar. So would you mind giving an introduction from your vantage point of sure. what is Agile and what did it mean for you to implement this into your arsenal? Absolutely. And I should say, just for transparency's sake, you'll never work on two Agile teams that work exactly the same way. Right. I think the, the point of Agile is that teams adapt it to work the way they need to work. Uh, but uh, most of your listeners, most of my colleagues are familiar with Agile as a set of ceremonies, right? There's a daily stand-up for a team. There's every two weeks or three weeks or four weeks, we do a demo. We do a backlog grooming. We arrange. Um, and those things are phenomenal, right? Great parts of Agile. I don't want to underemphasize them. I think they, they help teams get to the principles, which are really important. But... I think what Agile really represents and why it's so important for data science is it and the ceremonies, the structure, the way that you think about planning or budgeting when you work in an Agile team, the really the focus of it is on empowering a small team of people who have different skills and backgrounds to work together on a project, not in a I'm the leader, you're the follower relationship, but in a hey we're all experts, like let's collaborate on this and find the right solution with kind of a, a nod towards the scientific method. There's a nod towards lean methods if people are familiar with it and really a focus on innovation and speed. Um, and in my mind in data and analytics, the best projects come about not when you have one genius analyst who has built something so amazing, but when you have a genius analyst who has built something amazing and another genius analyst who looks at it and says, what if you did this part, but just turned it so that it goes like this? And you just like, of course, right? And then all of a sudden things start to come together. You need to create those moments of people debating and asking questions and challenging each other. And, and generally in analytics groups, we're really bad at that. Like we're all uh, introverts. We all love the truth and we think that we're wrong. And so it's, it's hard to find uh, a comfortable way for us to debate. Uh, and and think constructively and creatively with each other. And I think Agile just gives like a safe space for people to do that, to say, hey, it's okay to work together. It's okay to admit that your first draft is not shouldn't be the final draft. And, it, and it's okay to recognize that there are many different ways to answer the same question. A business analyst's method is different from a data scientist's method, is different from a data engineer's method. Uh, and all those ways can matter. And the right product something we build out of those different pieces as they're useful. That makes sense. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. And sure. um, I always use this analogy because it's just applicable in so many places that 
Results often are like building a fire. So you cannot force it into existence. You need to create the conditions. I might have even uh, t told you this before, right? This, yeah, in the case of a fire, is the flammable object, heat and oxygen. When those things coexist, you can't help but the fire to emerge. It just does. Right? And if anything is missing, it just won't be there. You know, however hard you're trying. Now, as a leader, and we found this with, 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 uh, with our clients, but also uh, with our own business, that it's almost like as a leader, your responsibility is to create those right conditions for the inspiration to strike. It's kind of like, I think it was Benjamin Franklin. I hope he was, who was running with the, uh, with the key on the kite for the yeah. lightning to hit, right? You just need to create those ceremonies. So without you revealing too much about your secret sauce, right? What, what are your favorite, <laughs> favorite ceremonies uh, in your agile uh, project management? I know that every company is different. Every team is different. Um, but do you have any favorite, you know, highlights that you might be able to share with our listeners? Oh, hundred percent. I mean, a very easy for me to answer, uh, the, the agile ceremony that's number one for me is retro or retrospective, um, which is, uh, for those who aren't familiar, it's a very simple ceremony where a team sits together and says, okay, let's look back on the project we just completed. What went well, what did not go well, what should we do differently next time? What should we stop doing that we're doing today? Um, there's a million different variations on, you know, those kind of four general themes, different questions you can ask, different ways you can phrase it. But the idea is, hey, let's not just, you know, push this to print and then move on and do the next thing. The idea is let's, let's honestly talk about how we can get a little bit better the next time we do something. Um, and, you know, the, the way great teams are built is not through uh, just, just hiring the top talent, although that's important, just having the right kind of leader, although that's important, it's through trying and failing and trying and having moderate success and then failing again. And then finally finding that secret sauce for these people, for this company, for this problem that actually works. And you get there way faster by just looking back on what you happen to have done and saying, how could we make that better? I'm a huge fan of retro and I'm a huge fan of feedback, which is not an agile ceremony, but we, we do a lot. My team probably is a little bit tired of me uh, pushing them on this. We do a lot of practicing giving each other feedback without taking things personally. Um, that I think is really important for everybody to get better because, you know, if you were a professional athlete and you're trying to get better at running 100 meters as fast as possible, you have somebody watch you. You have somebody time you and you have them give you some ideas on what you could do differently. Um, you got to think about it the same way. Hundred percent. Actually, feedback is so important. Actually, uh, in my experience, doing feedback right, uh, it, it takes the same principles and the same uh, good form that it takes to be good at storytelling in general. Right? It's like actually Absolutely. connecting with someone in a in a meaningful way. A lot of times, like you have to be provocative. A good story is provocative, but it's still well received. Feedback is the same, and it pushes the individual. At the same time, you got to find a way of how to make sure that that person receives it. It's one thing that you have the feedback. It's one thing that it's valid, but it's still your responsibility to make sure that that bullet will find a home, right? In a good way, yeah. right? That's really well said, Laz. And just to say that in a slightly different language, like in storytelling with feedback, you have to know your audience, right? I mean, uh, the way I give feedback to a brand new analyst on my team who's just graduated from school and this is their first job is very different from the way I give feedback to senior manager on my team who's managing four people 
and is having trouble getting the team you know, up to pace, right? And that's because they're at different places in their life. They're at different places in their career. They might be having a different day today than they had yesterday. And, uh, you know, if you want to sell an idea, if you want to uh, tell a story that changes people's actions in the future, or if you want to give feedback that, uh, that makes a person really think about what they could do differently, positive or negative feedback, you got to think about where is this person right now in their life. And it takes a tremendous amount of sensitivity and intelligence to give good feedback. I won't pretend to be a master of it, but uh, it's exactly the same skill set. You're right. Like, how do I get this person to listen and make sure that my, that I'm communicating clearly? Uh, it'll make you smarter giving good feedback just as well as it'll make them smarter listening to that feedback and thinking about how it can change. Mm, absolutely. Actually, again, just uh, on the masterclass that uh, you guys attended, uh, the final, I don't know if you were there for the final case study from Joe Rappaport from uh, from Facebook, where he brought oh, yeah, that story, yeah, 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 when he, he had to present that very painful it, uh, uh, the p painful facts to that senior executive, you know, driving a Ferrari and just getting him to swallow that bitter pill that his bonus will be cut in half, right? Yeah. And it was really cool from the shout out to Joe uh, as he reflected on, you know, how this went and what it took for him to be able to do that well and make sure that he lands that conversation with a favorable outcome. Now, 100% right, that it always, always need to focus on your audience. Um, but have you identified any common patterns that are just good form, right? So if we want to pursue a sports analogy here, of course, there are many ways to, you know, score a basket, but then there's a good form, right? Which you follow, then you will have better results in the long run. So have you found any storytelling techniques? Um, and feel free to go strategic or tactical on this, by the way, that you found work, work well. Okay. So my first answer is probably not a direct answer to your question, but the second one will be better, I promise, right? The first one is you should absolutely cheat when storytelling, right? I, uh, and and I, what I mean by this is we talk about uh, negotiation skills, storytelling skills, obviously analytic skills is being important. They're all super important to telling a powerful story and having it land. But uh, something I think you don't hear a lot about, but it's super important is organizational intelligence, uh, understanding the organization in which you are telling the story, who are the power brokers in that organization, who are the decision makers, who are the people who are ambitiously seeking the new position that's just opened up, who are the people whose budgets just got cut in half. Uh, you know, before you show up at a negotiation with another company, you do your homework on what, you know, what are that company's interests likely to be, what pressures are on this company to move fast, you know, where are the different corners of that company's position. If you want to tell a story effectively, especially if you're an analytics leader and you're hoping that this business leader will take your message positively or will change their behavior based on what you're recommending, do your homework before you show up. What's going on in their life? How is their team performing? How does their paycheck get assembled? Uh, understand all those pieces that are kind of following them into this meeting. And that then if you just know that in the back of your head, the way you tell your story will change. Uh, if you don't do that homework, if you walk into a room and you know this person is the vice president of such and such, and you do have a cool model, you're gonna have way less impact than if you know, hey, this person just got into this role, they're four months in, they're looking to make their mark, or this person has been here 25 years, this is their dynasty, 
Uh, you know, we're talking about something that they developed 15 years ago and that has stood the course of time. Uh, you know, it's a very different story you'll tell either way. The second one, which I think is a little bit more practical, that's that's like a pretty staggering one to do the first one. The second one is whenever you're telling a story, start with something familiar. Start with something everybody knows. That is the, your first slide if you're doing PowerPoint, your first story if you're opening the group should be something that is familiar to everyone and that reminds us all we're kind of on the same page, right? So start with your company's last earnings release, start with uh, the last meeting where you all met together by resuming. When everybody, if you jump in and say, hey, we're gonna look at this new algorithm we've developed and it's super advanced, everybody, you know, some people feel thrilled, other people will feel left out. But if you start with, hey, here's what we're all here to do together. And here's what we did last time. And here's how our company views our business. Uh, then everybody can get around the table and be reminded we're all part of this story. And then you can go ask some tough questions, uh, bring up some problems, suggest some change. So I would start with the familiar is my best advice. That's that's a really cool advice. And especially because we see now as we we step back that good storytelling, whatever field you're in, whether you're a small business owner looking for investment, whether you're a senior analytics executive, engaging your key stakeholders on the board is, is, is the same idea, right? You're trying to, I know that the word sell has bad rep, but also because people usually don't know how to sell. So it also comes from an insecurity, but selling, you need to sell every single idea all the time, Absolutely. right? Yeah. And, and people, so, so when it comes to sales, uh, a lot of people think that, wow, look, I'm not, you know, Gordon Gecko. I'm not, uh, you know, I don't have this, uh, unbreakable charisma. It's, it's not going to happen. Well, actually sales is more of a science than an art. Of course, with everything it's, it's a six, but the foundations are, are, are very straightforward. So for example, what you just said, the familiarity is one of those things. In fact, um, as we think about, for example, getting uh, uh, investment, um, venture capital is a great example of how people make decisions, right? And sure. usually what, what small business owners do is that they are in love with that product, right? They mm -hmm. are in love with their own business. And when they go and approach someone with an ask, they immediately start with that. They, they immediately start with the how. This is what we're doing. This is how we're doing it, right? And that's all fine. But first things first, right? So... You always go from the general and the universal to the specific. It's like very simple idea, but if you reflect on most of your interactions, most people, including myself, I need to drink my own Kool-Aid too. You know, we are guilty of not following that right pattern, sure. right? Sure. And yeah. but what you said, familiar familiarity in a business setting, yes, what everyone knows. But even if you don't have that, you can go from the universal, a general trend, right? And then, and then you start zooming in. Why is this relevant to you, right? Mm -hmm. And from that point on is like, okay, this is the idea. This is how the future could look like. And this is how we can make that happen, right? So, so if we look at even these shapes, one is just creating merely curiosity. Then you need to make that intriguing to interesting to create the want, and then in this decision-making cycle of every individual, once we're past the emotional stage, which I know that everyone thinks that uh, they are making 
decisions logically. That's just not the case. It's always an emotional decision need to be reinforced and justified logically, right? So that's that's a great point. And I think you're putting it even you know better. I'm going out on this like lengthy explanation, but yours is so simple and actionable. Familiarity. Sure. What is this person familiar with? Yeah. And once you start on familiar ground, then it becomes easier to build your story because then you ask yourself, what do I want to do next, right? If you're trying to convince somebody to change course, to change their actions, I think you know, maybe you start in the familiar place and then you want to go to a place where you're like, hey, this is familiar. We all agree with this. Now let's talk about some problems we have. Like you're you're going down in the in the happiness scale, right? These are some of the things that we've all, we're all in the same place. We've all encountered these problems, right? And my new thing will help you solve those problems or our new idea might help us solve those problems. And so here's what we go forward, right? That general shape of like familiar, bad, exciting, and next steps, that's a real easy way to build a story. And Laz, I, I hope you won't uh, feel badly about this, but I do, I kind of want to pick on something you said a second ago, which is, I agree. Sales gets a bad rap, right? Especially among analytics folks, the idea of being a salesman of ideas is uh, is not always something that's a super popular concept. But I would push anybody listening, if you are the leader of an analytics business, you are in a position of a salesperson. I, I've heard from a number of great salespeople in my career. I'm, I don't think of myself as an excellent salesman. I, I do what I can uh, to get by. But uh, a mentor of mine once told me, you know, sales is about helping people move forward in their lives, right? You have a problem and I'm trying to figure out what solution, hopefully the solution I can offer you will help you move forward in your life. Uh, and if you do it the right way, you know, a lot of times we think about the used car salesman sort of example. Uh, if you do it the right way, if you're a salesperson who cares about your customer, you do it in a way that that truly helps them and you're willing to say when it's appropriate my product's not right for you right the problem you have you need to go do something else right? one of my taglines around swire that i'm really known for is data is not strategy uh and one thing i've found a ton is business partners of mine business leaders of mine come to my team or come to me and they're they're looking for they're they're looking for the data that will tell them what they need to do uh, and not what they need to do next, not the next step in their process. They're looking like if we can just pour into the data, it'll tell us our position in the market. If we just pour into the data, it'll tell us the future of our company in a lot of ways. And uh, and one way in which I try to be that sort of the good salesman is to remind them like, hey, your data can help you understand how to do the things you want to do. It can understand how quickly or how you can get faster doing the things you want to do. It can, it can understand which people out there are open to the thing you're trying to sell. But uh, there's no data that will tell you this is your company strategy. That's that's about vision. That's about what you see uh, being your role in the market. And, uh, and the data can help educate and refine it. But at the end of the day, uh, looking to data to make the fundamental decisions about a company is a mistake. You'll end up going in circles, analysis, paralysis, you know, constantly looking for the number that gives you the answer. Uh, your business fundamentally is about taking a risk, having a vision, and data can help you sharpen the course that you choose. But it's not the same thing as as a company strategy. Does that make sense? Um, it, it makes perfect sense, and I love that you uh, just spent a little bit more time on the sales concept because it's really important to break. You know, 
um, these conceptions. The used car salesman is a perfect uh, example because even in that case, if you look at it, um, what's wrong is that it's fundamentally the wrong motivational structure there. The sales, the, the used car salesman doesn't not care about the relationship at all. Yeah. The used car salesman wants the ink to dry on the line that is dotted and that's it. And then if they, if they never see you again, it's, they're fine. It's even right. better, yeah. right? It, it, yeah. It's even, yeah. even better. Mm -hmm. Now, this is uh like this seems like on the surface like a good strategy but i don't think that it was a good strategy even in the 70s right but it's definitely not a good strategy <laughs> now right yeah, in, yeah. in in the current economy plus it's not even about like getting bad reviews or anything it's all about missing out on a huge opportunity because once you actually establish a good relationship with someone that's where value can be generated that's why relationship building and the ability to build relationships is inherently valuable you meet someone and now you are on a common ground to build collaboration. And even with uh, with this, uh, what I, I want to tie it back to something that you mentioned in the beginning, like how you consider yourself to be a curious person, how you think it's very important to be curious as a data analytics leader. Well, good news. One of the best things you can have in sales is curiosity. And why? Yeah, Because the whole journey that you, uh, that you go through, yes, you meet someone in their own world, right? With something familiar, uh, you, you intrigue them, you interest them, whatever you come with, especially amongst these uh, competing narratives today, it's really hard to do with good storytelling. You earn your way into actually having this person's attention and interest. And on the back end of it, when we actually talk about whether what I have to offer can help you, you need to approach it with genuine curiosity. Is is this actually something that this person will need? It's really, uh, even with, with our uh, team, right? That's why I don't like to hire people who do have experience in the field, especially in sales, because once I introduce them to the process, they're like, oh, okay, wow, this is this this is really interesting. So that means that then you spin it. And it's like, no, you don't spin anything. You want to find out <laughs> if it is actually for the yeah. person. We do the storytelling, we do the engagement, we build up to that moment when it's the moment of truth. And it's actually the moment of truth, whether it will be for that individual or not. And if you approach it, it's one of those counterintuitive things is that once you approach it, actually it will, it will be relevant more and, and more of the time than otherwise. I just had a conversation with one of your fellow masterclass attendees, Isaac from Memorial Sloan, just literally today. And we talked about data literacy and that kind of, uh, like seeming contradiction that the less you talk about data in the business, the more people start using data as well. <laughs> one of those yeah. universal concepts, right? I, I had a meeting this morning where, uh, you know, I asked my team to prep me a little bit on what they wanted to talk about. And we had a whole bunch kind of to our earlier conversation. Uh, we had a whole bunch to talk about, about this thing that we built and how cool it was and all the features of it. And, uh, you know, and I asked them some questions. We talked about what we wanted to get out of the meeting. And I said, you know, guys, this is not the right way to approach this meeting we're going to spend the entire meeting talking about that. Like that's, that's what we need to do because we built all this stuff about what we assume they need, but we haven't really spent the time to understand what they're actually trying to do, what their goal is. And even if we're right, even if we got lucky and we built the perfect thing, you know, they, they're not going to be likely to believe that it's the perfect thing until we take the time to really listen to them and understand their needs, understand how they plan to take, whatever we're building and go forward and use it. Right. Um, and so in that sense, we didn't talk about data. We didn't talk about data at all in that meeting. We talked a little bit about um, some different projects we'd had in the past, 
Well, we really talked about what is the problem you're trying to solve with this thing you invited us to a meeting to talk about and, and what will it look like when it's successful? How will your people feel differently? How will they behave differently when it's successful? Uh, and we, you know, it just so happened that 45 minutes into the meeting, uh, one of my, you know, data scientists was able to say, oh, so if these are the things you're looking to solve, if this is the experience your people are willing to have, what you need is something that will help you triage these opportunities and select the best one. It was exactly what my team had built, which again, was only lucky. Uh, you can't guarantee that's going to happen. But think about as a business partner, how exciting it is to go look at something that helps you triage your opportunities and pick the best one after somebody's really listened to what you need and and uh, and then has thought about it and applied that to you know their tool set. It's, it's a completely different uh, way of approaching problems. And it's, in my experience, it's just way more successful, I'll say. Uh, and and uh, again, not to pick too much on the sales topic, I would argue as actually that most salespeople in the world are much more engaged in the type of sales you and I are talking about, right? Um, I, I've been really inspired since joining uh, Consumer Packaged Goods, right? Swire is a bottler of Coca-Cola. Our customers are Walmart and Kroger and Maverick, uh, you know, the retailers in our, in our geography. And we don't view them as customers we're trying to get the most out of, you know, we're, we view them as partners, right? Uh, they're the venues through which our product is sold. Our goal is to create as much volume, as much revenue as we can for that partner, because when they grow, we grow. Um, and those kind of relationships are the relationships that succeed in business. Uh, whether you're an analytics person talking to your CEO or CFO, or whether you're a vendor talking to a client, uh, you know, when you build those relationships, they survive and they sustain and they last. And so I think it's much more common, although it's, it makes worse TV. So maybe you see it less on uh, Netflix, right? Uh, but that's, that's what you see more often in business as you kind of get a bit of perspective because the other relationships, the used car salesman relationships die out. I mean, you know, they, they happen once and then they're done, but the partnerships that you build are the things that really sustain. So true. So true. And the best salespeople I know, uh, I just had lunch with one of my good friends here in Vancouver. Uh, we used to work together, one of the best sales guys uh, I know. And um, he said that his take and approach to sales also evolved over the years. And he really reached a point where at every single interaction, all he's looking for is how can he provide value to this person? And he's legitimately, he, his approach is that, look, if we've been on this call for 10 minutes and I'm not providing value to you, we should hang, hang up the phone. We should call it quits. It was great but we should move on, right? And I know that a lot of times in data analytics, the frustration comes from your knowledge that what you have to offer is amazing. It, it changed someone's <laughs> life, but sure. they're not using it. And that frustration, so, so basically your value is not finding a home. And this is why what we found is the connective tissue, what can bridge it is by actually providing value to someone, but people say, but, but I don't know how to provide value. You know, I don't know. I have the, I, I have the, I have the solution. I have built something amazing, but in the interaction itself, I mean, I'm I'm a little bit lost. How do I provide value? And this is the huge missed opportunity because just by approaching this interaction with curiosity, asking the right questions, taking the time to understand this person's perspective, it's inherently valuable. It's not valuable because it will allow you to do something. Just in and of itself, 
it creates that kind of environment and relationship in which you will be able to embed whatever you have to offer if the fit is there. So no, absolutely. And I'm glad we, we uh, you know, lingered a little bit and exhausted this particular field because I do see this as a huge bottleneck and it's a force multiplier for data analytics practitioners once it clicks, right? Once it clicks, exactly. then the, you know, the sky's the limit. So yeah. Uh, also, I'm, I'm conscious of our time because I knew that this conversation will go like this. And uh, by the way, I have I had some I had some questions lined up, and I don't think <laughs> I, c- I could even like rip into them at all because we just uh, you know spend time on on other stuff. But it's great. So um, for you right now over at uh, over at Coke, what are you most excited about? So what are uh, what are the opportunities from your perspective? If you think about your team and the impact that you can make, that you know really really gets you pumped and motivated. I, I think honestly, well, and, and, it, and maybe it's an opportunity to talk a little bit about our discipline and how it's changing over time. I, the one thing that's really exciting for me about working at, at SWI right now is my team has the opportunity not only to, to provide value, to provide reporting and analytics and AI and machine learning, which themselves are helpful. I think we're working with our IT organization, we're working with our enterprise project management organization on bringing Agile into the company, on working together to uh, align our teams against certain value streams, and really thinking about, you know, there's kind of an industry term, digital transformation, right? Which is kind of broad and, and you know, not very specific, but what I see is my team being given a chance to play uh, a larger role in how the company is shaped and how not only do AI and machine learning tools inform the tactics of what we do. How do we figure out how the company works and where the company's focus is such that uh, digital tools, digital innovation, which is something that Swire is really focused on, can drive the most advantage for our people, for our customers, uh, and for consumers. To watch, what's exciting to me is to see analytics and data science and pull up a seat to that table, to how should the company work together and how can everybody be better connected to drive the company strategy forward? Um, that's been hands down the most challenging part of my work at Swire to date. And also the most rewarding part is getting together with other organizations, getting together with our CEO, CFO, chief strategy officer, and talking through how do we align ourselves to really drive value um, through analytics, through AI, but also through IT through running great projects through the company uh, and through our company's strategy vis-a-vis our competitors, our peers, our customers. Uh, that has been, I think, a, a career-defining experience for me, honestly, to be part of that larger conversation myself, but also to give my team a place on that stage and let them produce things that will truly shape the way the company moves going forward. It's been very, very cool. That's amazing. And you know, analytics has been trending for a while and yeah, machine learning and, uh, you know, that kind of hype doesn't seem to be going anywhere, especially with you know, generative <laughs> language modeling, for example, chat GPT. Sure. Yeah. Now, I think it's a double-edged sword though. Uh, in in a sure. sense, it does make your life easier because the familiarity is always, is already there, right? But mm-hmm. we do see a bunch of uh, high-level executives building amazing things fall into the uh, uh, into this mistake of taking this hype not only for granted but assuming it's more than it is so it's kind of sure. like you know in, in in sales if someone tells you wow amazing fantastic 
send me some more information and I definitely take a look at that. This, this is actually mostly what we, the, the equivalent in the corporate world is what often happens with analytics, right? The lib yeah. service is there and executives might be genuinely interested, but people are not really getting through so that they will actually back up, back this up with real investment, with real action, right? Yes. So how, how do we, you, yeah, go ahead. Sorry to interrupt you, Les. We, we do that to ourselves in analytics as well, right? It is so easy to create uh, some PowerPoint slides that describe the cool thing you might do. It is so easy to uh, to present, you know, kind of a shiny object. Um, you know, the, the way that you defeat that sort of resistance, that sort of disbelief, is 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 through the hard work. At the end of the day, and on my team, we have a, a kind of a culture we're building of real demo, right? And uh, you know, I'm sure you do. I, I get calls from five or six vendors a day that want to take me through six PowerPoint slides and show me a two minute video clip of what their tool can do. And, and you know how this story ends, right? You get into it and it's not exactly what was promised or it's, you know, that's coming three versions from now. Um, we, we measure ourselves uh, in terms of our outcomes, our KPIs, our scorecard, whatever you want to call it. And we also hold ourselves to showing real, real live experiences, real live tools. And we don't see a project as being done until real user functionality, real benefit to our users can be proven. Um, and, you know, I've already taken you down this road in our past conversations, but I really believe in this. I, I believe the right way to look at yourself as an analytics leader is to think of yourself as a business within the business, right? Uh, and, you know, I go on about this for 45 minutes. I know I'm already exhausting your timeline, but the, the real point of that at the end of the day is to focus on what is the product that you are at the end of the day giving to somebody is that product making a difference and measure the real impact of that product because if you know if uh, if apple were to come and try to sell us a phone and you know they sold us a really nice looking box that didn't really work there's no future business in that for them their company does not survive they sell you a game-changing piece of technology that works just the way you want it to work and so they have, you know, excellent customer loyalty, all those things. If you lead an analytics team, you need to be thinking in exactly the same way, which is it's not enough for me to be a used car salesman to give you a beat up old junker that looks good the first day you drive it off a lot. You all come back to buy from me again. You'll go find a vendor to do the work. It's not enough for me to make promises to you and then never show up with the goods. Like you need to be thinking about yourself as a small business person. You want that person to buy from you today by, you know, accepting your work, by going forward and using it, and then come back again three weeks later and want more. And I think if you think about your team in that way, not as a team that creates cool stuff, not as a team that needs to look as impressive as possible, but as a team that needs to keep its customers coming back for more by actually answering what they want, it's much more challenging to do. It takes a lot more work, but ultimately you will be way more successful You'll avoid a lot of the pitfalls that I've fallen into in my career, uh, and I know many others have. And and also, you will learn how to tell a story that will convince a senior leader, a CEO, a CFO, because in order to be that small business within the business, you have to understand how your business, the larger business, creates value and how you can add value to that business. And, and that's all that the folks in the C-suite, the decision makers in your company care about is how can I create more value for this company? If you force yourself to understand that and think about how your small business 
creates value for that larger business, you'll be able to tell a story to any C-suite executive and get them to nod along and at least ask great questions, if not agree with you uh, in the meeting. That's that's my personal philosophy. That's that's kind of what gets me up every day. And I love that you brought it up because that was one of the reasons why I definitely wanted to get you on the podcast because you know we, <laughs> we keep hammering this point about that you need to look at yourself as an entrepreneur. Now, it sounds like one of those, sometimes it's one of those uh, you know buzzwords that everyone says, yeah, sure, but it's not really being taken uh, to real action. And uh, with this entrepreneur idea, I think it's it's genius because it really puts you in a viewpoint, to in, into like a vantage point, into a perspective where now you can see like all these missed opportunities that yeah, Because if you look at yourself as an entrepreneur and you look at your analytics function as a business within a business, well, what does a business need to do? Of course, it needs to build like a really cool product, a really cool solution. Fantastic. Step one, you know, and then after you need to market it, sell it, brand it, connect it with the customer, tell the story. So you brought up Apple. Um, I don't really like to, you know, be too much of a of a fanboy of Steve Jobs, but he was actually, it's a fantastic story to look at. And the whole story of Apple, well, first of all, still Apple, it's very unique amongst the the, the biggest conglomerates. I mean, if you look at that profit model, it's just it's silly. It's, it's it's ridiculous, like how much value they generate, right? And and how much uh, a profit they have, and their customer loyalty. It's unparalleled. And if you look at the curve, how that came to be, even the story of Steve Jobs and uh, uh, Wozniak, right? Even even our logo. I, I don't think you can see it, but the logo with the two hemispheres, with the creative mind and logical mind, they had that, right? So yeah. they had the ability to build amazing technologies. It was there. The 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 the, the Wozniak. Uh, brain power, but then Steve Jobs could take that and recontextualize it and properly position it in front of the customers and tell a story around it. And if you look at even the iPhone, it's like as iconic as any technology will get. A lot of the functionalities, if not all of the functionalities, were already around for years. Many oh, yeah. companies tried to sell it, but it just didn't land. And a lot of people would have presumed that, well, it's just not something that's useful, apparently, right? Until someone came and connected that to to the, the the customer's life and told a story yeah. around what that technology will do for them. It goes back to what we talked about earlier, that balanced team, right? I, I mean, you can argue that Jobs and Wozniak were that balanced team or probably more accurately that they created those balanced teams between design and business and technology at Apple that were able to solve these problems. Because you're right, you know, tens if not hundreds of companies have been shouting at consumers, hey, this is what a graphical user interface is, or you know, they they acquired the technology to do the motions on the phone that you and I are so familiar with today. Like a lot of that wasn't stuff they invented, but what they did is they took the time to figure out how do I connect all these things together so that it's easy, so that there's no friction for my consumer as they move through the product to naturally use this and for it to feel intuitive. And I, I think that's you know that's what a lot of teams are missing in analytics. Uh, many teams have figured it out as well, is not just am I creating good things, but am I creating things that are useful and that don't require too much effort on the part of my business partners to use? Uh, it's absolutely an essential skill, and that balance is an essential balance for any analytics team, for sure. For sure. The, the whole idea of the human-centric technology, and maybe that would be a good note to finish on. You mentioned that book before. I never heard of it, The Human Element. Human what, element, yeah. Yeah, what is that book? It sounds relevant to what we just talked about. 
Oh, it's a fantastic book. It's actually one of my professors at Kellogg is one of the two authors. He, he and a partner of his, who's a neuroscientist, wrote this book called The Human Element. Highly recommend it. You know, the, the overall philosophy is how do you make change, right? Uh, my personal thought on how you drive change in an organization is having the right incentives at play, right? Understand how people get paid and how they get promoted and how they advance and how they get recognized. And then have the right uh, methods to make change not scary, right? To uh, bring in co-creation, uh, make it feel more like fun, feel like play, make it a highly collaborative experience where people are on the team, right? That's that's the Pete Scherf version, but a much more eloquent version is in this book, The Human Element, where they talk about there's fuel, there's the reasons why we push change forward, and fuel is helpful. You can't make change without it, but people tend to overly focus on fuel. They focus on pushing change, like you know, uh, we'll pay more money if you change. We'll uh, give you benefits to we'll change. We'll here are the perks of my product. Here is the you know carry under the curve of my analytical model. Uh, these are all sources of fuel, and most people ignore the reasons why people are resisting change, which is the friction. Right? My business user, you know, the model is great. It's working amazingly. It's a very powerful thing. The problem is using a model makes me feel like I'm not smart or I'm not as smart as the machine is, or using the model is really cumbersome because I have to switch browser windows and click five times and then switch back in order to do it, uh, right? You know, if it's effort, if it's a feeling of being changed without being part of it, these are all sources of drag uh, on our customers, on our business partners, if we want them to change their behavior. So fantastic book. I would highly recommend it. Really educated my way of approaching asking partners or leaders to think about something differently is, okay, I've, I'm done thinking about what the solution should be. Now I need to think about the reasons why they might not naturally want the solution. Which of those can I take away so that it's not a problem? Mm, well, that's fantastic. And uh, I love that image, but the fuel, some people would ask, oh, so you say the fuel doesn't work? No, fuel works if the car is in the right gear, right? Yeah. So you need to create that condition. First of all, my analogy will break down here because the friction is uh, is in the analogy of the car, right? It need to, needs to be in yeah. the right gear. In this case, first, the friction needs to be removed so that yeah. if you pump fuel into it, then it will do what the fuel should do, which is to accelerate that change. Absolutely. So you, you cannot just pump. As analysts, yes. as analysts, we understand this, I think, more than most. Fuel has diminishing returns, right? If you, you know, once you've pumped, once you've gotten to a certain level of model complexity, you're not going to get that much more gain by building a better AI model, right? It might be a little bit more, might be valuable, but at the end of the day, that curve starts to flatten over time. That's how kind of fuel works. You need it to get up that curve, but more fuel doesn't always help you change faster. But reducing that drag, reducing the reasons not to change, that can often be the thing that pushes you forward. That's just something I think we naturally ignore as people is we're really thinking about this fuel side and not, you know, requires empathy and some patience to figure out how to remove friction. Hmm, I love that. And in human decision-making, um, there is a saying um, in, in influence psychology that urgency does not force the decision, urgency forces the action. So if you think about your daily decisions, right? Your daily decisions, yeah. urgency absolutely works, but it, it does, so a lot of people say, oh, so if I have urgency, then I it can force me to make a decision. No, the decision needs to be made. It's a different circuit. Right, but once the decision is made, if you have urgency on that natural 
uh, uh, circumstances of urgency, it will make you to act faster or or to act at all. So that that that, that 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 that's that's great. And uh, look, Pete, this was a fascinating conversation. I want to be respectful of your time because we're already significantly over the planned time frame. But then I hope we can maybe get in a round two someday, maybe further down the road, and uh, and uh, see how things go with you over at Sire. I think we definitely have a lot more to talk about. Give me a call anytime, Les. Thank you, and thanks to the data storytellers. You guys are doing fantastic work connecting leaders of analytics together. And I know I learned a lot in the masterclass. So I appreciate you, man. Have a good one. No, we appreciate you.